Good morning. I want you to take your Bibles or your apps, whatever you read on. Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Uh, Now, if you're not familiar with how to find Revelation, I'm going to put a graphic on the screen behind me that uh, gives some basic instructions on how to find it, or uh, there are also instructions on the screen on how to locate us in the Bible app. You can follow along with all the Bible passages and notes uh, in the Bible app if you have it downloaded on your device. Now, today is Palm Sunday, and I'm going to explore that a little bit more here in just a moment, but You may be asking yourself, how is Revelation 4 a Palm Sunday passage? Well, it is. I'll get there. But we've got some unpacking to do because Revelation 4 is the beginning of a new section in the book of Revelation. So let me give you some background first, and then I'm going to ask you a little question to kind of get us uh, going in the right direction today. Uh, So far in Revelation chapters 1 through 3, uh, we've know, we found that John, one of Jesus' closest followers, he's one of the last 12 disciples that's still alive, he has a vision of heaven. And in chapter 1, he comes face to face with Jesus, and Jesus tells him who he is. He gives himself these titles, these job descriptions, basically. And then in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus says, okay, John, write down everything I'm about to tell you because I want you to take seven letters and give them to seven churches. And over the last several weeks, couple of months, we've been unpacking each of these letters to the seven churches. Now, we finished that last week, and now we're jumping into an entirely new section in the book of Revelation. Now, let me ask you a question that might springboard us into this new section. Have you ever been to the house of a famous person? I was in eighth grade. I got to go on a trip to Washington, D.C. Okay, you with me so far? Washington, D.C. We got to tour the White House. Uh, And when I was there, it was Ronald Reagan's last year as president. And so we're touring the White House. Now, I'm a Texas boy from the Texas Panhandle, very conservative. So everybody I grew up with was a huge fan of Ronald Reagan. And so we're, we're standing in line to go into the White House. And some of my friends were like, you think we're going to see the president? I mean, this is his house. His office is here. He works and lives here. His family's here. He eats here. Do you think we're going to see the president? And so there were a few of my friends that as we did the tour, and if you've ever done the tour of the White House, it's not what I expected. They don't take you into the president's bedroom. (laughs) It's the guy's house. I'm an eighth grader. I was expecting to see the kitchen and the living room where they watch TV, and I wanted to see his bedroom. Maybe not the bathroom, but I wanted to see the living quarters. But when you tour the White House, what do you see? You see the green room and the red room and the blue room. And they've got all these very formal rooms that have, uh, over the, the decades and centuries, they have been built and designed to receive the highest ambassadors from other countries and companies and famous people. And so you don't get to see the living quarters. You get to see these really amazing, beautiful rooms, but they're very rarely ever used. 
And so we kept going through, okay, when are we going to get to see the president? When are we going to get to see the president? And we kept walking through. And and towards the end, I was like, we're not going to see the president. Reality was beginning to sink in. But I started thinking, what if we saw the president? What would my reaction be? How would I respond if we're going through the green room and all of a sudden Ronald Reagan walks through and says, hello, what would my response be? Have you, do you guys remember fangirl like Beatlemania? Okay, maybe you remember if you're younger, maybe Taylor Swift mania. Do you remember when, when people would freak out when they got to see a famous person and they would faint? <gasps> right? You know what I'm talking about. What would be your response if you got to meet face-to-face your hero? You ever thought about that? Let me put a spin on this because we're going to open up the Bible here in just a second and read about this. What would your response be if you met your Savior? If you stood face-to-face with God, Have you ever thought what your response would be? Let's look at what John does and what we see the heavens do. Take your Bibles, Revelation chapter 4. We're going to begin at the very first verse. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, and then I'm going to kind of unpack some things, and then we'll go through the rest of it. Uh, So Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Remember, John has just been given all these letters from Jesus, and that section has concluded. And look how verse 1 This is John speaking now. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So apparently, he's been standing kind of at the threshold of heaven, and Jesus came out to meet him. Continuing midway through verse 1. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Now, This is a reference, remember, to chapter 1. Chapter 1, the one whose voice was like a trumpet was who? It was Jesus himself. So Jesus is speaking here and said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So Jesus is now on the other side of the door that goes into heaven in this vision. Now remember, all this is symbolic. And Jesus says, hey, John. Come up here. I want to show you something that's about to happen. Okay, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, so in front of the throne, were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And behold, the throne there was at it was a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, front and behind. 
Verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Okay, now all of that sounds incredibly strange, right? Let me walk us through this. And then we're going to get to why this is so impactful and important to this particular day. So imagine John goes up and he sees the throne room of God. And everything inside this throne room is doing what? They're praising the person on the throne who is God himself. So they're praising God. Uh, We're going to read here in just a moment that those 24 elders that are sitting on the 24 thrones and have their crowns here in just a minute and later in chapter 4, they're going to take those crowns and they're going to lay them at the feet of God's throne. And so every living creature, every heavenly being in this scene is doing one thing. They're praising God. They're completely and totally focused in showing their adoration to their king. Before I go any further, let me tell you, this is my big idea for today. Let me just give it to you because this leads into everything we're talking about today. My big idea today is this. In the presence of his perfection, we can't help but give him our adoration. Let me say that again. In the presence of of his perfection, we can't help but give him our adoration. You want to know what your response would be if you got to meet your Savior face to face? You would drop to your knees and worship him. Because the Bible also says that at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We would drop in humility to our knees and give him praise. Because think about what everything's doing in this scene of heaven. Everything is giving God adoration. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about all the symbolism. Remember, this is almost completely symbolic in everything it's showing us. And I want to unpack just briefly what each of these things symbolize. I've got a picture that I want to show you. Throw that picture up on the screen. Now, I was, I was a little you know, divided about whether to show you a picture of this scene because this is not literal. When we read Revelation 4, this is not meant to be read and understood as this being a physical place with physical beings. This is all spiritual and symbolic. There is a throne room that God sits on, but that throne room is not a physical throne room. John tells us that God is not physical. He is spirit. So there is meaning behind everything in this picture right here. This is way oversimplified. 
Because I would imagine that if you actually were see, was seeing what John was seeing, the glory and the majesty of all of it would make this sketch just, it, it, it just falls so short. But, but let me unpack for just a moment the symbols that are taking place inside of this throne room. Inside of the throne room, John describes it as kind of having concentric circles. There are layers of things that are in front of the throne and around the throne. So first, he talks about the throne and God sitting on his throne. Now, there's not much explanation needed for that, right? God is the one and only King of Kings, is he not? He is the Lord of Lords. There is only one truly authoritative throne in existence, and that is the throne of God. So God is sitting on his throne. It mentions that there are seven lamps, seven torches in front of the throne. Those are the seven spirits of God is what Revelation 4 says. Now, we actually talked about this because this was mentioned earlier in Revelation. If you go and listen to the message from March 5th, uh, you'll, you'll hear about how these seven spirits are more than likely a reference to the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, so let me give you the reference here. Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 3 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, of course this is talking about Jesus, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. And if you keep reading, it, it expounds on Jesus and who he is and what he will do. Now, in this passage, there are seven spirits listed. And the seven spirits is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of what is happening here. I know it's a big jump for us to understand that because we don't reason that way. But that was the way Greek and Hebrew people thought in this day and age. Then the Bible says that Revelation 4 tells us that there is a rainbow over and around the throne. Now, the, the imagery of the rainbow is what? Go back to Genesis. Where do you see the rainbow? Flood has taken place. God has wiped the, the earth clean. Noah and the animals are on the ark. Noah and his family, they land, they get out. And then God has a conversation with them and says, I'm never going to flood the earth again. I'm never going to destroy mankind by flooding the entire planet. And I'll give you a sign that's, that, that's the signature of my promise that I won't do this. And what was that sign? A rainbow. Now, here's the cool thing. When you think about why God gave us the rainbow, what does that rainbow represent? It represents a promise, of course, but it represents a promise of grace and mercy, doesn't it? I'm never going to wipe mankind out again through a flood. I'll show you patience and grace instead. And here's the symbol of that grace and mercy. It's a rainbow. And so around the throne of God is God's own symbol of mercy and grace. While God is the judge and he will judge all things, there's grace and mercy in him. 
And so there's a rainbow around him. Then there's this sea of glass, like crystal, that's all in front and around the throne. There, there is a lot of Greek writing uh, mythology about uh, glass floors, <laughs> basically. And the symbolism here is every time in Greek mythology that you saw glass, uh, walking on glass, it was a symbol of beauty and purity. And so John is borrowing this in his vision. He's seeing this beauty and this purity being symbolized by God's throne sitting on and being surrounded by a sea of glass. Now there's 24 thrones with 24 elders. And these, these thrones are all around, whether in a full circle or in a semicircle around the throne of God, there's these 24 elders sitting on their thrones. They're in white garments and they have crowns. Now white garments, every time you see white garments... In the Bible, it's a symbolism of righteousness, of, of, of stand, good standing, right standing before God because you live for him or we live in the righteousness of Jesus and he gives us the white garments. So these are 24 elders. These are 24 representative or actual people who are pure who are righteous and they're in front of the throne. Now look with me in verse 10. Go down to verse 10. Actually, let's go ahead and start at verse 9. We'll cover that too. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and praise. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So these 24 elders, in humility, are taking off their crowns, and they're laying them at the feet of God. This was actually something that was very common in this day and age. When an ambassador would come to visit Caesar, the, the Roman emperor, many, many times they would enter into his throne room and one of the symbols uh, of submission to his power and authority was that they would take off a crown or a wreath or some kind of thing that they had on their head and they would place it on the steps in front of the Roman emperor. And it was a symbol saying, okay, the Roman Empire is greater than my empire is. And so I am placing my loyalty and devotion to you. And so these 24 elders are, are proclaiming that. And then you've got the four living creatures. These guys, this has to be symbolism. Because think about the description. One looks like a lion. One looks like an ox. One has the face of a man, and the other one is like an eagle in flight. They each have six wings, and they have eyes covering inside and out of these wings. Now, if you go and read Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1, you're going to hear the exact same imagery. These are called seraphim. They are heavenly beings that circle the throne and worship God continually. 
And these living creatures represent the order of creation. Think about it. Man at the pinnacle. So you've got man represented. You've got the birds of the air in the eagle. You've got all of the beasts of the ground represented in the ox. And you've got all of the consuming, eating predator creatures in the lion. Now, in Greek and Jewish thinking, this was symbolic representing all of creation. You think, well, what about the fish? And what about fish were so lesser beings in the eyes of the Greeks and the Jews that, that they weren't considered at the same level as the creatures that walked the earth. And so by God using this symbolism of these four creatures specifically, he is proclaiming that all of his creation worships him. Are you with me so far? I, I know I'm nerding out on you, <laughs> but we're going somewhere with this. So look with me in verse 8, the second half of verse 8 specifically. In your Bible, it may be this little three-line, two-line section that's kind of off by itself. It's the song that these four living creatures continually sing. And what do they sing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, in the Greek language, this was a beautiful song. If you were to hear this and you were a Greek speaker, you fluently spoke the Greek language and you heard this in the original Greek, you would hear this beautiful tune, this beautiful song. But I want you to notice something. The word holy. How many times... Is the word holy spoken? Three times. Now, something that we as Western Americans never do, or almost never do, uh, that Jewish and Greek people did, and if you start reading your Bible looking for this, you'll see it all over the place, but Jewish people and Greek writers used repetition to get points across. So they'll repeat something in order to convey an importance about something to the listener. So let me give you two examples. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, we have the creation story, days 1 through 6 of God creating the universe, right? Day 1, he creates this. Day 2, he creates, and all the way through day 6. Then on chapter 2, he has day 7 where he rested. And then there's almost like a repeat of the creation of man, of Adam. They aren't two separate occurrences. The Jewish writer, Moses himself, through God dictating to him, was trying to convey the importance of the creation of Adam. So he took the story and gave us a summary in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2 he repeats it in more detail to place more emphasis on that particular occurrence. I know this is hard for Americans because Americans want everything to run in a fluid line, right? Why didn't God just in day six start exploring a little more about how he created man? Why didn't he just take chapter two and plug it in to the back of chapter one when he was already talking about man? That's not the way they did poetry and writing back in these days. Repetition meant something important. When you heard something repeated, you were told in a, in a cultural way, 
pay attention to this. This is important. Let me give you another instance that's maybe a little easier to wrap your mind around. How many times have you heard Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, X, Y, Z, right? He says it all the time. You know, if you went and read that in the original Greek, the words that Jesus is using is literally, amen, amen. And then he goes into saying, I say to you, truly is the word amen. And so when Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you, when the disciples or the people who were listening to Jesus heard him say, amen, twice, everybody went, shh, he's about to say something important. He's going to drop some serious knowledge on us. We need to pay attention. He repeated himself, shh. But here's the thing. In verse 8, holy is not said twice. It's said three times. So if repeating something twice conveyed a level of importance, what do you think repeating something three times means? Three times, repeating something three times was incredibly important. I can't remember the movie. Oh, no. I do remember the movie. Right here and right now, I remembered it. The Christmas story. Remember the Christmas story? They played on TBS like 24-7 leading up to Christmas after Thanksgiving. The story of the little boy living his life and all he wants is a Red Ryder gun, right? I'm, I'm kind of shooting from the hip here because I'm just remembering all of this. But, but remember the flagpole scene? There's this scene in this movie, and it's hilarious, where they're standing around this flagpole. It's freezing cold outside, and they're looking at the flagpole, and one of the kids says, you know, I was told by my older brother that if you stick your tongue on the flagpole, it'll stick and won't come off. That's a lie. That's not true. Oh, yeah? Stick your tongue to it. No, no, we got to get to class. We got to, I dare you. And what does the narrator in the movie do? The narrator in the movie goes, oh, he just dared him. And then what happens after that? No, 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 we got to get to class. It's almost time. I double dare you. And then the narrator stops for a second. What does he say? Oh, he double dared him. No one in their right mind would say no to a double dare. He goes, no, 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 we can't. We really have to get to class. And then what does he say? Some of you in here remember the line, I double dog dare you. Remember that line? And then the narrator says what? No one can say no to a double dog dare. It's almost that kind of emphasis here when the creatures around the throne are saying, not holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They are proclaiming that because we've repeated this three times, there is no holiness compared to that of God. You may be able to think of some holy beings or some holy people in your mind, but they are nothing in holiness compared to the one who sits on the throne. The three-word repetition, I went back and looked. I asked a professor of mine from my doctoral studies, how many times do we see something repeated three times in this kind of way? You know how many times this happens? 
four to five, depending on how you translate some things, in the entire Bible. And do you know what all of those are except for one? It's worship of God. John is sitting here watching as every living being in the throne room is giving God the highest of adoration and worship. Nothing is compared to it. So, I've talked about how this is symbolic. Everything in here is symbolism. I mean, just think about these four living creatures. Have you ever seen a lion with six wings that have eyeballs inside and out of the wings? Obviously symbolism, right? Isaiah, Ezekiel mentions it. It's symbolic. But what does chapter 4 mean to us? Let me just give you a, a glimpse of where we're going in Revelation because this springboards us into the parts of Revelation that a lot of us read and go, okay, I'm lost now. Okay, this sounds a little scary. Okay, I'm uncomfortable with this part of Revelation. This springboards us into that, the, this chapter and the next chapter. But this is a, what's called a divine council. Think of a courtroom scene. You've got a judge, Right? God sits on his throne as the judge. You've got witnesses in a courtroom hearing, don't you? Yes. The 24 elders are the witnesses. Next week in chapter 5, we're going to see Jesus as the witness to testify before the king on the throne because Jesus is also the king. We see that we have people surrounding the throne, the four living creatures who are vindicating what is taking place and affirming God as the judge. We'll see as we go that there's going to be mediators in front of the throne. There are going to be intercessors in front of the throne. There are going to be all of these different occurrences taking place. But how does this apply today? This is Palm Sunday. How is Revelation 4 a Palm Sunday passage? Well, let's unpack Palm Sunday for just a moment. And I'll wrap this up. What is Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday is the day in which Jesus entered back in to the city of Jerusalem, but he did so differently than he had ever done before. Normally, he would just come into Jerusalem through one of the gates, and he would teach, and he would do his thing. But in this particular instance, Jesus is entering, and he specifically tells his followers, guys, go into town. You're going to come across a donkey colt. Go grab it. Bring it back to me. If anybody asks, just tell them that the Lord needs it, and they'll let you take it. Bring me the donkey colt, a colt that's never been ridden on. I'm going to ride this donkey into town. And they're like, okay. This is getting really weird, but all right. And then they figure out why. As Jesus rides in on this donkey colt, people line the street and they start singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they lay their coats down on the ground for the donkey to walk on so that the donkey doesn't walk in dirt. It walks on something sacrificed. They take palm branches and lay palm branches in the road declaring that Jesus is the king. Do you know what this is symbolic of? Is that when a king would go out to battle, 
He'd go out to war and he would return victorious. He always came into the gates riding on a horse and clad out, wearing his sword, declaring that I'm coming in, not just as your king, I'm coming in as your victorious king. I won the battle. I beat the foe. But think about how Jesus defeats the foe. He doesn't do it with a sword, does he? Jesus defeats sin by humbly coming in and laying his life out. Giving his life on a cross. That's how he defeated sin. He doesn't come in normal like a victorious king. He comes in in humility. So, in, in, in the Jewish faith, Sunday's not the Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath. So they, yesterday was the Jewish Sabbath. But yesterday's Sabbath was a special Sabbath. It's called Shabbat Hagadol. Shabbat Hagadol means the great Sabbath. And it's the great Sabbath because it's the Sabbath before they prepare for the uh, Passover meal. The Passover is the backdrop of Jesus' last week in Jerusalem before he's betrayed and he's hung on a cross. Why is it called the Great Sabbath? Because the Great Sabbath is the day that they were allowed, the Jewish people were allowed to go out and pull aside, set aside the lamb with no blemish to be sacrificed for the Passover meal. Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem the day after the great Sabbath, as our Passover lamb. But he's the king, isn't he? Next week in chapter 5, we're going to hear and see how Jesus is also on the throne. He is our king. He is our master. Most of all, he is our savior. He died on this cross, not this exact cross, but he died on a cross so that you, right where you're at, so that I, so that all of us, if we would believe in him, we could be rescued. We could be saved from our sins. You see, we are all bound to death. We are bonded to it because of our sin. That sin has condemned us to eternal punishment. But Jesus died and took the punishment for you as our king. If you don't know Jesus, if you never come to believe in him, we would love to talk to you about that. He loves you so much that he paid the ultimate price so that you would not have to suffer eternal punishment. But if you would believe in him, you could be rescued from that eternal punishment and instead have eternal life. Jesus is our king, but he gains victory in a way that is counter to the ways of the world. And remembering the big idea today in the presence of his perfection, we can't help but give him our adoration Thinking back to the question that we began with, if you stood in front of your king, your savior, what would your response be? 
This week is Easter week. What has your king called you to do this week? What has your Savior asked you to do in his name for his people? Who is it that Jesus is asking you to have a gospel conversation with? Who is it in your life that Jesus is saying, go talk to this person and tell them about your king? We've all got somebody in our life. Who is it that needs to hear about Jesus this week, this Easter season? Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you so very much for all that you are, all that you've given. We thank you that you are our King. That you have declared victory over sin and death so that we could be saved. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor and the praise. And we pray that in this week, we would listen to your leading. And even if it's uncomfortable, even if we're afraid, we pray that you would give us the words and give us the courage to tell those around us about you. Help us, Lord, to be your light shining in their world of darkness. The people would be rescued from their sins. We thank you, Lord. And we lift all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.